listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. you've had a, a good week. It's been a good week um, here at South Point. The Lord is blessed. Our people have been involved in um, so many so many good things. Yesterday a group of men came and did a lot of work um, up here at the building and uh, men and ladies and thank you all so much for that, for that investment, for that time um, and your love for the Lord and just, just expressing that. Uh, we've had people meeting with people, serving people, loving people, um, throughout this week, and um, I'm just so thankful for y'all. I'm thankful to be here. Um, if you're new to South Point, um, usually the lights are a little brighter, and we're working diligently on that. Everything's good. We're going to make it through. If you'll open your ears and open your heart to God's Word, the Spirit can even work when our technology fails us. Amen? And so we're confident in that this morning. Um, you probably, with the lights a little lower or at an advantage, I probably don't look quite as old as I normally do with the light shining and showing all the wrinkles and lines and um, and all the the paste that I put in my hair to get it to stay down as I let it grow out. So um, so anyway, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at a, a familiar story and maybe looking at it in a different way. Um, uh, but before we get into the text of Luke 10, I want to take just a minute to look at two contexts. I want, I want to look at the greater context of, of Scripture. And I want you to think of Scripture not as a, a textbook, um, but I want you to think of Scripture as uh, a story. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I mean that in an exalting way. God, in His sovereignty, began by saying, in the beginning, God, and then the 66 books that we have in Scripture... Um, is the story of God, is, is who God is and what He has done and what He will do and who we are in light of who God is. And so, so I want you to think about Scripture as story. It's a story about a powerful God. It's a story about a purposeful God. It's a story about uh, a relating God. It's, it's an unfolding story of God inviting us from darkness to light, from death to life. It's a story of a holy God redeeming a sinful man to make his worst enemies his best friends. It's a story of a relating God. God with us. It's the story of God sending his son, the God-man. He's fully human. He is fully and completely everything that God intended for us to be before the fall. Look to Christ. Look to His humanity. He is perfect humanity. And we see the beauty of that in the text of Scripture. But He is absolutely and fully God. This is the story of God. And He invites us into that story. Scripture is us seeing the story of our lives absorbed into this unfolding story of Scripture as we read through the Bible. Secondly, I want you to consider the specific context of Luke within that, within that greater 
story, within that greater narrative, within that greater biography. And Scripture, over and over again, is just this biography of one person after another and how these people plug into God's greater story, God's greater plan. But we come to the Gospel of Luke, and we see Luke writing to Theophilus. You've heard me mention that uh, many times. But we have to ask this question. What does Luke want Theophilus to see? Because what Luke wants Theophilus to see should have some bearing on what we look for when we come to the text of Scripture. I think Luke wants Theophilus to see the character and nature of Jesus Christ. He wants him to be able to identify Jesus Christ unmistakably. He also, Luke, wants Theophilus to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And I want you to just stop for a minute and take a deep breath and think about the beauty of Jesus Christ. We miss that so often. We run to him to say, help me out with this, fix this, right? Make my life better. But life is about relating to him and his beauty and seeing and understanding and sensing and experiencing the beauty of Christ. But I also think that not only does Luke want Theophilus to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, I also think he wants Theophilus to see the beauty of Christ in his people in community, how Christ is working through humanity and human relationships, the people that he has redeemed. And he also wants Theophilus to see this sense of invitation into the story of God. Come in to what God is doing. Join him. That same invitation would be to you and me from the Gospel of Luke this morning. Before we look at the text, I want you to go back. We looked last week at chapter 10. I want to go back to verse 21 because I think chapter 10 and verse number 21 sets the, the context in, a, in an even more specific way relative to the text we're going to look at. You've got to see this, but you've also got to see yourself in this text. I don't want you to miss that because he identifies in verse number 21 two different groups of people. Look at Luke 10, 21. He says, in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And what we're going to see as the text unfolds, beginning in Luke chapter 10 and verse number 25, is the wise and understanding. We're going to see a law expert. We're going to see a guy who knows the Bible probably better than all of us combined in this room but he is wise in understanding, and although he knows the Scriptures in great detail, he misses the point of the Scriptures. We're also going to go through the text, and we're going to see this man that falls in among uh, thieves, and he's, he has all sorts of problems. We're going to see a priest. We're going to see a, Le a Levite walking by on the other side. We're going to see a Samaritan, somebody that's despised by the Jews, coming to help this man who has fallen. We're also going to go further into text, and we're going to see Mary and Martha. We're going to get a picture of the wise and understanding, those that think they've got it all figured out about Jesus and his word, and the infants like Mary who sit at the feet of Jesus. So this lays out the context for us. So if you will, over in, in chapter 10 and verse number 25, look, look at what he's saying. He, he says, and behold... He's trying to get our attention here. Behold, look at this. Luke uses the word behold 26 times in his writing. 
And he's, he's wanting to draw attention. Stop what you're doing and look at this. And behold, a lawyer stood up. I think he's saying behold because coming out of verse number 21, he's saying, okay, behold, look, here's the wise and understanding. Here's the guy that's got it figured out. Okay? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That essentially is the fulfillment of the law. The, the fulfillment of our, the commands that are related to God and the fulfillment of the commands in the law of the Ten Commandments that are related to other people, human relationships. This is the fulfillment of the law. This is the essence of the law. You have answered correctly, verse 28. Do this and you will live. When he said do this, he's saying keep on doing this. Do this over and over and over again. Do this perfectly. But he, the lawyer, the legal expert, Desiring to justify himself. So we see a second thing about him. First of all, he's putting Jesus to the test. Secondly, he wants to justify himself. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied. Now Jesus begins to share with us this, this some would say, the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's, that's critical. He's walking down this, this sharp uh, rapid drop this road where thieves and robbers could hide out and it was probably a common thing for people traveling that road to be um, ambushed and he fell among robbers notice the details scripture is giving us details we don't have to try to read anything into it we don't even really have to use much of our imagination other than just just enter into the text just read the text go there he gives us the details because he's drawing us into what's happening in these people's lives not only so that we could somehow critique them or have all the right answers he's drawing us into these people's lives so that we can look in our own heart to say what's going on in my life what's going on in my heart so here's this man Falls in among robbers. They stripped him and beat him. They beat him over and over and over again, is what the text would say in the original language. And then they departed. They left him alone. They abandoned him, leaving him half dead, leaving him without hope, leaving him without anyone to come to his aid. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, took him to a rehab center, and took care of him. And the next day... He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus asked this question to this lawyer. He says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I think this is included in the same story because we'll get back to verse number 21 to try to understand the immediate context. We're looking at the wise and understanding in verse number 21, but now we're looking at the infants. We're looking at the little children. We're looking at those who are humble. We're looking at those who don't have it, have it all figured out. We're looking at those who are hungry. We're looking at those who are in awe. We see that in Mary. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. One guy wants to debate. One guy wants to challenge him. One guy wants to match wits with him. One guy wants to put him to the test, right? And, and then Mary, a, a woman, by the way, and it was not forbidden in the Torah to teach a woman, but it was looked down on. Women were not viewed as created in the image of God. They were viewed disparagingly. Why waste your breath teaching a woman? But Jesus comes on the scene and turns all of that on its head. And here is a woman sitting in the position of a pupil at his feet, listening to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. That's, those are, those are, uh, that's a way of affectionately addressing somebody. Jesus and his love. Martha's out of line, certainly. Martha is probably struggling with some contempt, certainly. Martha thinks Mary is just wasting her time sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him. Martha thinks napkins need to be folded and maybe there's some crumbs under the table where the kids dropped them at breakfast or maybe one of the, the curtains is not just creased just right or some, some leaves have gotten into the mulch in the front yard and so Martha's just worried everything's just got to be right. And Mary, seated at the feet of Jesus, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So we see the, the greater context. We see the specific context. And I just want to kind of break this thing down in, in three simple um, sections this morning. First of all, I, I want you to, to notice this, this conversation. This conversation that Jesus has with the uh, the lawyer. The text calls him a lawyer. He is a law expert. He is a Torah expert. He has spent his life being trained, being educated so that he can interpret the Mosaic law and so that he can apply the Mosaic law. So calling this man a lawyer means that he is recognized, that he is respected, that he is degreed, that he is probably published and he is probably um, a very impressive and well-known scholar. And he asks a, a great question that I believe he knew he had the answer to. You see, he wasn't seeking information from Jesus. There was not urgency in his heart regarding what it really means to have eternal life. He was simply curious about the depth of Jesus' understanding of the law. Quite frankly, he was more concerned with critiquing Jesus and debating Jesus and matching wits with Jesus than he was about 
eternal life. So here is this guy that understands the law. Here's this guy that understands Scripture. And what he wants to do is he wants to put this thing in an academic realm, in an intellectual realm, in, in a rational realm. Completely missed. Two things. He completely missed that the work of God is done more in the heart than it is in the mind. Although we have the mind of Christ and a work is done, our minds are renewed. A great work is done, but it's not just in our thinking. It's in the transformation of our heart. It's a new heart, and he completely missed that. But he also missed the fact that the very scriptures that he was an expert in were intended to point him to Jesus Christ. John 5.39 says, you search the scriptures, and this is disparaging. This is, this is an indictment of the Pharisees. He said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures point to Jesus. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. But they wanted to argue about, well, what is eternal life? And he gives this good scriptural answer from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. Scripture points to Christ. It's about Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 73, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life, Jesus that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The legal expert wasn't concerned about whether or not he had eternal life. In fact, I'm certain that he was confident that he did have eternal life. Why did he think he had eternal life? Because he was the expert of the law. How could anybody who knew the Bible as much as he did not have eternal life? But being the expert that he was, he didn't even recognize that the scriptures that he knew so well were given to us to point directly to Jesus Christ. And he could not see that the one that scripture pointed to was standing right in front of him. He knew the scripture so well, and he missed Jesus in all of his knowledge. The text minces no words in fully expressing this man's heart, and Luke wants us to see his heart. And I want to just take a minute to consider a few things about this man's heart that we've seen uh, in the text that would tell us that his question was um, out, of, out, out of a heart from impure motives. First of all, he put Jesus to the test. He put Jesus on the hot seat. He wanted to debate Jesus, but he, he ultimately wanted to humiliate Jesus. He wanted to use his theology to exalt his intellectual, rational, uh, denominational superiority. He didn't view Scripture as words of God or life or light. He viewed Scripture and theology as weapons. They were weapons that he would use to critique other people, to judge other people, to analyze other people, to diagnose other people. Scripture is their principles for life that if, if you uh, adhere to the Scriptures on these issues, then they will produce certain outcomes. So Scripture was like a genie in a bottle as far as he was concerned. Scripture was anything but relational. And here's what I want you to understand. This text is pointing out to us that Scripture is everything relational. If you are in love with Scripture, if you are an expert in Scripture, but you don't love Jesus, 
you don't see the beauty of Jesus Christ, then you miss the point of Scripture, no matter how much of it you have memorized. So he put Jesus to the test. It's not comical. It's tragic that we have this deeply religious man looking perfect humanity and perfect deity square in the face instead of falling down and worshiping him. He, in his arrogance, decides that he wants to put up his dukes and debate with Jesus Christ. He put Jesus to the test. The second thing in the text that we see is that he wants to justify himself. Say, how dare he? By the way, folks, we all do that. We all do that. My wife says something negative to me. My wife says something critical of me. What do I begin to think? You know, well, you know, I've put gas in the car, self-justification, you know. I loaded the dishwasher, I vacuumed like nine out of ten times. She told me a long time ago, she said, when you vacuum the house, it turns me on. And so I'm just like, (laughs) you know, like three times a day. And and she's in there watching HGTV while I'm vacuuming. I'm like, what in the world's going on, you know? (laughs) Self-justification, Right. We, we immediately go, when anybody comes at us to make us feel like we're less than, or anybody comes at us and we feel shame, shame then pours out of us with self-justification. Self-justification, and, and, and you, you can write this down. When you find yourself in an argument, when you find yourself around people that you feel uncomfortable around, whenever you feel shame, most of the time we experience shame and don't know what we're experiencing. But it's probably our, our baseline emotion. You can, go back to the, you can go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2.25. They were naked and unashamed. Christ bore our shame. Shame is throughout the Scriptures. Adam and Eve, immediately when they sinned, they ran into the, the, the woods, the bush, wherever, grabbed fig leaves and covered themselves up. Who told you you were naked? Now they begin to feel the shame and they want to cover their shame with self-justification. That's what we do. That's what we do. He wants to justify himself. In fact, deep commitment to being deeply religious many times, oftentimes, most times, if not all the time, deep commitment to being deeply religious is about self-exaltation, to escape shame through human effort, to make ourselves good enough, to make me look good, to give me grounds in this internal struggle and in this internal debate to say, I'm good enough. I I, I just can't imagine that this guy with all of the contempt that he was feeling inside as he confronted Jesus and all of the knowledge and all of the pride and all of the arrogance had to on some level experience being melted simply by the countenance of Jesus Christ, the love in his eyes, the tenderness in his voice. The fact that Jesus didn't just come in and say, you want to match wits? Let's go at it. How do you interpret it? What do you see in it? He showed the man respect. He showed the man love. But this law expert wants to justify himself. I'm good enough. None of us is good enough. This body, this gathering should be filled with people who do not walk in 
with a, a bunch of checked boxes for the sake of self-justification. We should walk in as a group of people who know that we're broken. We walk in limping. We, we walk in bleeding. We walk in hurting. Many times people walk into church and their lives are wrecked and they're filled with pain. And they look around at a bunch of perfect people. And they say they could never imagine what I'm going through because we come in seeking to justify ourselves. And so he wants to justify himself. Thirdly, he equates eternal life with human effort. You do all the right stuff and you're going you're gonna to get God to give you what you want. You, you do the right stuff, do more of the right stuff, act a certain way, and God is obligated to save you. Notice that he didn't say, how can I have eternal life? Notice that he didn't say, what is eternal life? He said, what shall I do? I can do it. I can be good enough. I am wise and understanding. Back to verse 21. But then back to verse 22, he essentially says in verse 22 of Luke chapter 10 that the only way that you can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. What must I do? Well, you, you have to believe in Christ. You have to believe that Jesus came and lived the perfect life and fulfilled all righteousness. Let me just apply what Jesus did in this text. Jesus came and loved the Father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he did it perfectly. Jesus came and loved humanity. Jesus came and loved his neighbor, and he did it perfectly. I cannot love the Father perfectly. What must I do to have eternal life? Well, you've got to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. All, all, all. You can't do it. I can't do it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do it. You can't do Deuteronomy 6.5. You can't do Leviticus 19.8. You can't do it. Jesus did it. My faith is in the one who did it. Not in what I do. I can't do it. I can't be good enough. What is in this man's heart? We've got to ask that. Self-righteousness is in his heart. His knowledge of Scripture didn't drive him to a relationship. By the way, our knowledge of Scripture should drive us to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our, our knowledge of Scripture should drive us in, just press us into the fellowship of the Trinity where there's perfect love, where there's perfect fellowship, where there's perfect joy. We get into the Word of God and it should drive us into this place and it should drive us outward to those around us and we should love them with the love of Christ that is shed abroad in our hearts and flows out of us as the fruit of the Spirit. This man's heart was filled with self-righteousness. His knowledge of Scripture didn't drive him to relationship. It drove him to an exalted view of himself, an illegalistic, sterile, graceless, relationship view, relationshipless view of God. The revelation of God is about life. The revelation of God is about light. The revelation of God is about a new heart, not a new and improved self-righteous you. So he was self-righteous, but he also had contempt in his heart. Contempt is when you put yourself above someone else. Contempt is when you feel like somebody's trying to put you down and, and something wells up inside of you. We all know what contempt is. Look it up. You can see a, a good definition of it if you Google it. 
We don't know that we struggle with shame. We don't know that we struggle with self-righteousness. We don't know that we struggle with contempt because there's such natural reactions in our fallen heart and life, and we don't take the time to let Scripture and a relationship with Jesus Christ drag those things, dig those things out of us so that we can deal with them. This man didn't want to be wrong. He didn't want to be wrong. I, don't, I just want to let you know I don't want to be wrong. You don't want to be wrong. I don't want to feel shame. We'll do anything that we can to prevent feeling shame and contempt is a, is a, is a shield that we put up to stop from feeling shame. And so there was this contempt because as he looked at Jesus, he knew that he was talking to someone different. He also sensed that Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. There was this calm, loving confidence about Jesus Christ, and it caused contempt to well up in his heart. And that contempt can be seen in his conversation. It can be seen in his confrontation. It can be seen in his argument. It can be seen in his desire to self-justify. I would ask you as we look at the text, what's in your heart this morning? The text, the text begs us to say, what is in your heart? What is it that makes you think that you have eternal life? The fourth thing we see about this man is that he seems confident that he loves God supremely and unwaveringly. He, he, he doesn't flinch. At, when, when Jesus said in, in the text, uh, or when he answered Jesus in the text, what, what, how, how, do you, how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He didn't flinch at the loving God part. He felt like he had that. He was pretty confident that he had eternal life because he was pretty confident that he loved God the way Scripture said he is supposed to love God. And he said, I've got that. After all, I'm a law expert. I've given my life to the study of the law. Here's a good place for a gulp when we see the alls and the love for God that, that, that quite frankly is impossible for us to have. And to love our neighbor as ourself, quite frankly, is impossible. But he was certain that he loved God with all of his heart. But the truth of the matter is, if that is the standard for eternal life, none of us can go to heaven. Because none of us can meet that standard. None of us can obey the law. None of us can fulfill the law. But this man was unfazed. His knowledge of Scripture and doctrine and memorization comforted him. He knew the answer. He had been catechized. He could say the right things. Therefore, he felt like he was okay. Saying the right things doesn't mean that we're okay. The fifth thing we see about him is that he seems confident that he continuously loved his selected exclusive neighbors. But he wanted a more specific answer from Jesus, a self-justifying answer. Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who then is my neighbor? And so Jesus goes into the story of the Good Samaritan. I look at that. I look at love the Lord your God with all, 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 all. And I look at loving my neighbor as myself. And I grade myself with a big fat F. I failed at that. 
And I don't want to be mean or ugly, but you have to. Right? We've just failed at it. But I know a man. And he did it for me. And he said, trust me. Trust me. I will come and stand with you. I will be your advocate. I will come and enter your life. I will invite you into this beautiful fellowship. So we see this conversation. The second thing we see as he unfolds this story, this, this parable or this recounting of maybe something that was true, an and illustration. And he's continuing to contrast the wise and the understanding and, and the child in the text. But we see four people in this text, and I would like for you to just think about who, who they are, but I would also like for you to think about who you might be in the text. Um, first of all, he saw a, a man, and this man was um, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Perhaps he had been to Jerusalem to worship like the priest and the Levite had, and maybe he was going back home to Jericho. And he fell among robbers. He fell into the hands of wicked, violent men. He fell into the hands of ruthless criminals who had no regard for life. I, I, I bar every door in my house. I've told you that. I set the alarm because I don't want anybody to come, up my, come through my doors, come up my steps and be breathing on me while I'm asleep and fall into the hands of some violent criminal. That's got to be the most helpless feeling in all the world. Can, can you just think about what this guy's going through? Maybe he's been to worship, and maybe he's looking forward to going home. Maybe he's got to get home at 5 o'clock. Maybe his wife's got supper on the table. Maybe while he was in Jerusalem, he bought some gifts for his children, and he's excited. He's just minding his own business, and he finds himself with these guys jumping out from behind the rocks, and, and they do all of these things to him. The, these ruthless, these wicked Criminals who had no regard for life. And scripture says they, they stripped him. He was naked. He was exposed. He was shamed. And they beat him over and over and over again. And he's bruised and he's bleeding and he's violated and he's humiliated and he's left alone without anybody to hear him cry for help. He was half dead. I've never physically been there maybe you have but the fact of the matter is all of us have been there spiritually all of us have been there through some circumstances in our life this man was filled with fear he was filled with shame he felt foolish he felt hopeless he was alone he was forgotten his life was messed up his life was messed up. Uh, 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 Isaiah chapter 42 just kind of gives us a description of, of Israel in their rebellion against God. He said, but this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restored. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen, for the time 
to come. Hear these. Hear this man is. We like sheep have gone astray. Jesus is looking out on the masses and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd just being taken advantage of. I see a couple of things in this man and I don't want you to miss them. Um, I, 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 see, I see me there. I see you there. I also see Jesus there, right? Did you know that John 1.14 says, Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not? Do you know that the very creator of this world walked into the human race as a human being to show God to men and mankind looked at him and would not receive the very one who created them and in whose lungs his breath breathes in and out? He was despised, he was forsaken, he was beaten, he was humiliated, he was shamed. So we see this man. It's a picture in some ways of our Savior who, who is our high priest, right? Knows what we're going through. He's touched with our infirmities. If you're, if, you're, if you're there, if this is you, if this is where you find yourself, and by the way, all of us really need to find ourselves here. All of us need to find ourselves in fear. All of us need to find ourselves alone. All of us need to find ourselves in shame. All of us need to find ourselves hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. He understands that because he's been through that. The second two people that we see, we see the priest... We see the Levite. These are, these are the religious superstars. Let me just be clear to say that this is not an indictment of Jewish people. This is an indictment of Judaism at this particular time in human history. At this particular time when this was going on, this is an indictment of, of Judaism, of the religion. It is not anti-Semitic in in any way, but let us understand the priest and the Levites were, were the, the rock stars of Judaism, they were the very best of the best. If you wanted to find the very best morally, the very best spiritually, the, the, the very best people that you would want to try to be like, you say, I want to be like the priest, I want to be like the Levite because these guys know the law and these guys are doing everything that the law says. They also were going down to Jericho, not up to Jerusalem. You say, why is that significant? Because if they're going up to Jerusalem and they're going to do their work in the temple, they, they have to experience some form of ritual cleansing to be able to do that work. But they've already been up there and done their work and they've left their work in the temple and in the ritual cleansing, and now they're headed back, and they have time to go back to Jericho, have time to go by and help this man, know that the law would say, even if somebody's donkey was gone astray, that you should go and help them. You should help people in need. This is clear in Scripture, but they don't because they were using their ritual cleansing inappropriately. You see, they believed if even their shadow touched somebody that was dead, that they would be unclean. But they had time to go back to Jericho and to experience ritual cleansing through a process and still be able to go back to Jerusalem and do their work. The issue was an issue of their hearts. 
they should have helped the suffering man. So we see these two. I don't want to land on them or beat them up too heavily. <laughs> have you ever crossed by on the other side when you saw somebody in need? I have. You ever rolled up your window? Right? You ever just didn't look at somebody? You're like, you're sitting at the exit ramp and you're just staring straight ahead. If I don't look, he doesn't exist. If I don't look, I don't have to do anything. We're used to passing by on the other side all the time. And then finally, this, 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 this Samaritan comes along. This, this is important. Who are you in this text? Who are you in this text? Here's the Samaritan. Here he comes. Who's the Samaritan? Well, the, the, the Samaritan was despised. This this could have been a finger in the eye on the part of Jesus to the lawyer. Let me just stick a finger in your eye. I don't believe Jesus was doing that. I do believe Jesus was um, working to incite the priest and the Levites and the high priest to eventually get to the point that they want to say, we've got to kill this man. But he brings up this Samaritan, but a Samaritan, verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. And by the way, it's believed that this guy laying there bleeding and beat up and victimized and ransacked and alone was Jewish. And here's a Samaritan going to help a Jewish man. This was unheard of. Then he set him on his own animal. Again, we see the picture of a suffering Christ, but we also see the picture of a redeeming Christ. We see, we see in this Jesus doing all of this for us, He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, gave it to the innkeeper. And, and we've, we've already read through that. He, he shows compassion. He provides care. He ab absorbs cost. In this we see the gospel. The gospel begins with the total despair over ourselves. It's got to. Have you ever felt that despair? But, but the gospel also takes us to a place where Jesus' mercy finds us. Our merciful Savior finds us. And Jesus asked the question, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said to him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, what was he saying? Was he saying, I'll tell you what, you, you go and start a ministry that finds people who have been beat up, who are alone, and you go and you just, just get, get you a hero unit and you travel down all the, the pathways and you travel up and down the road from Jericho to Jerusalem and you look for guys laying in the ditch. You, you, Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus is saying that a transformed heart will be a heart of mercy to those who are hurting. Right. 
who was his neighbor? His neighbor was the one who showed mercy. And, and you know what? We have the capacity, if we're truly born again, to show mercy because every one of us was in need of mercy. Every one of us should have at some point felt alone, felt despised. Sin will, sin will just beat you up. It will beat you down. It will destroy you. Jesus comes to rescue us. I would just ask you this morning to look into your heart. Jesus moves from the conversation to the illustration, and this is the application. This is what he's saying. Here's the application. You go and show mercy. If you are going to be a neighbor, then your life must be this, this one big outpouring of mercy. So what kind of neighbor are you? Are you merciful? We must see our helplessness. Listen, here's what I believe, and this isn't in the text. I believe that Jesus is a great high priest who is touched with our infirmities because Jesus, first of all, he is perfect and he is holy and he is love and he is compassionate, but he experienced being despised and rejected. And now we have a high priest who can relate to us. But we also must come to grips with the fact that generally the people who go out and give mercy are those who understand that they've experienced mercy. The Samaritan at some point probably experienced the same thing that this, this Jewish gentleman did laying there in the ditch. How soon we forget where we were. How soon we find ourselves crusty and arrogant and looking down and judging. Well, if they had done the things that I did or if they knew what I knew, they wouldn't be in the mess that they're in. We, we just do that. Because we forget where Jesus found us. And so there is the application. And the application continues on to the end of the text with the story of Mary and Martha. And we don't have the time to get into everything that's there in the text. Other than the fact that we see this lawyer who had it all together. We see this lawyer who's got it all right. We see this lawyer who is wise in understanding because he thinks he knows the word of God. And we see this woman who has had the word of God refused to her sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, worshiping him like a child, just soaking it in, drinking it in, and loving every minute of it. Let me, try to, let me try to bring us to a close. I don't know how much time I have. Thankfully, the, the timer's not up there. Um, let me let me just let me just say um, some some crazy things as I as I end some stuff that you may not get. I hope you will. Religion will not save you, and knowing Scripture will not save you. I'm not opposed to knowing Scripture. I've given my life to it, so so don't don't take what I'm saying. And, and misapply it. You can if you want to. I can't stop you. Um, I love Scripture, but I'm telling you, there are a lot of people that know Scripture that will, will spend eternity in hell. 
Because knowing what the Bible says will not save you. This lawyer knew it. Religion will not save you. Being a priest, being a Levite will not save you. Religion will not save you. Knowing scripture will not save you. Being a church member will not save you. Getting baptized will not save you. Joining a church will not save you. Being a very good person will not save you. Doing more good things than bad things will not save you. Saying the right things, answering all the catechisms the right way will not save you. Only faith in Christ alone will save you. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly loves the Father. He perfectly loves the helpless. And until we trust Him, we are helpless to even attempt to do either one. We are helpless to even attempt to love the Father or to attempt to love our neighbor. But when Christ comes in, We are a new creation. When Christ comes in, we have a new heart. When Christ comes in, His Spirit comes in. And now I can love God with the love of Jesus because Jesus is in me the hope of glory, right? And now I can love my neighbor with the love of Jesus. It's not Mark Powell, feather in my hat, check in a box. Look at me. I love God. No, I don't. I asked my wife, I said, what would you say about me? And I won't tell you the whole story. I said, well, what are you going to say about me when I die? Because I'm presuming that I'm going to die before she does. Because her mom's 86. You know. She said, well, she said, uh, I would say you love God. And I said, I don't. I don't. I probably told you this a couple of weeks ago, right? Somebody nod your head if I did. You, you, forgot. you forgot. You forgot what I said five minutes ago. Folks, we don't love God. And if we say that we do love God and we think that we believe that we love God, it is because Christ has transformed our heart and it's Christ's love in us. But, but listen... If, if, I'm, if his love is in me, then I am going to love him. And if his love is in me, I am going to love others. So only faith in Christ alone will save you. Religion will not save you. Knowing scripture will not save you. Knowing the right answers to catechism will not save you. Only faith in Christ alone will save you. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly loves the Father. He perfectly loves the helpless. He died in our place for our sin. God is holy. We cannot come into his presence apart from our sin debt being paid for. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ rose victorious over sin, the resurrection. But but here's where it gets kind kind of crazy. We must be a community desperate for mercy. We must be a community desperate for mercy. Don't don't get too far away from where Jesus Christ found you. We must be, South Point Fellowship, we must be a community that's desperate for mercy.
And if we're a community that's desperate for mercy, we will be a community that is lavishly dispensing mercy. Right? We need to be crying out to God, God, have mercy on us. I desperately need your mercy. We need to be a community that is desperate for mercy, but we also need to be a community that is lavishly dispensing mercy. But let me, let me, let me take that a step further because we don't talk much about mercy. We don't see ourselves as the guy laying there on the road that's, that's helpless, that needs mercy. But we also don't look around to even people in this body who may be having all kinds of internal struggles and need a dispensing of mercy, and we're not moving toward them. But here's, here's the, the, the second thing I would say. Mercy can only be fully experienced in a confessional community. I'm going to go back to the beginning of the context. The context is in the context of story. And the story of God is where our lives are intertwined with the life of God. In fact, He becomes our life when Christ, who is your life, appears. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Where our lives are intertwined with the life of God. And because our lives are intertwined with the life of God, then our lives are intertwined with each other. And that's what community is. But the thing that intertwines us together, if intertwining is a word, is when we come together in confessional community and we share our story with one another. There is nothing like us sharing our story with one another that knits and binds our hearts together. Mercy can only be fully experienced in a confessional community where our story of brokenness intersects with his mercy through his people. It's, it's not until we're willing to be this guy laying there on the side of the road who cannot do anything to help ourselves. We're willing to enter into community and say to those who are in community, this is my story and I desperately need mercy. And we sit down with a brother and sister who is willing to share their story of the mercy of God. It is then that our lives are knit together. And the mercy of God then begins to flow between us. We experience his power between us. But the mercy of God then begins to flow out of us. And then it brings healing in the lives and the hearts of those who are around us. But, but it starts in confessional community. You say, what is confessional community? Some kind of confession. I'm not talking about the London Baptist Confession. I'm not talking about the Westminster Confession. I'm not talking about that kind of confession. I'm talking about a community where we're willing to lay our lives bare uh, with our brothers and sisters that we're in community with. If we don't do that, when folks walk through these doors... You know what they think? They think everybody in here's got it together. And hey, ladies and gentlemen, can I be honest with you? We gladly act like we've got it together. We gladly act like we've got it together. Let's form a line. Oh, some of you got nervous. Oh, we're going to have an invitation. Let's form a line. Of those who don't have it together, I'm number one. I'm number one. Would you, would you, would you get in line? 
Would you be someone who is a recipient of mercy so that your heart can break and bleed and reach out to those who desperately need mercy? That's what Jesus is saying and Jesus is modeling. We can, we can come and we can learn every bit of this, and I hope we do. We can read every bit of it. We can memorize every bit of it. We can answer every question. We can know doctrine frontwards and backwards. We can know historical theology. We can know systematic theology. We can know biblical theology. You can know Greek. You can know Hebrew. But if what is in here doesn't point you to Christ, then you miss the point of it. And the point of it is this, that we were a desperate people in need of mercy and Christ came to us and poured his mercy out on us so that his mercy could flow through us to those that we are in community and in this world with. And when that happens, then we experience healing and health and wholeness. But it only happens in confessional community. And it only happens when we know that we have had mercy poured out on us and we can pour it out on others. I, I thought of this story this morning, and with this I'm, with this I'm closed. Um, I, I, would, I would say this. Let me, let me just add this little scripture caveat. Um, I love Genesis 2.25. Not, not because I think it's erotic, okay? It says they were naked and unashamed. What does that mean? It means in the garden before the fall, before sin, before Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve were fully known and fully accepted. When the power of the Spirit begins to work in the life of the body of Christ, we would be a people that would exalt His grace and mercy by proclaiming how desperate we were for it and then worshiping the one who poured it out on us, and then offering it to others who desperately need it. But it can only happen when we're naked and unashamed, when we're, when we're fully known and fully accepted. Uh, years ago, it was, gosh, it was over 40 years ago, 45 years ago, me and a buddy of mine borrowed somebody's Econoline van. Some of you don't know what an Econoline van is. <laughs> it's one of those vans that had two seats and the engine in the middle and a windshield, just a windshield right in front of you. People could see everything through the windshield. And so we borrowed an Econoline van to move uh, his brother up to um, Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We got in that truck, or that van, we loaded his stuff, we drove it up Chapel Hill. On the way back, the alternator went out on our, our van. We kept trying to figure it out. This old guy, he's, he's probably in his 40s, but when you're 18 years old, 40 looks really, really old. This old guy stopped, and he got out. He said, what's your problem? He said, I want to help you. And so he, he limps over, and we're pushing it, and he's pushing it. He's limping behind us, pushing. We're pushing, trying to get the thing started. It wouldn't start. The alternator was out. So he jumped up in the back of the van. It was empty. We had emptied all the stuff out of it. And when he sat down there, he reached over and grabbed the bottom of his right leg and just pulled it off. And I'm just like, what is this guy helping us for? Why is he helping us? He needs help. 
He was, well, here we are, all of us under t- the age of 22, 23, and, and, and the, that was the oldest guy there. I, I'm not fudging on my age was like 17 or 18. He's pushing. Why was he pushing? Why did he even care? Why did he stop? <laughs> and then I looked at the guy, pull his leg off. I think he lost it in Vietnam. And I said, here's a guy that's experienced brokenness. Here's a guy that probably people look at him and they're like, what's wrong with you? What's your problem? Here's a guy that probably at some point through injury, through some kind of blast, thought that he was going to die. Here's a guy that uh, probably felt like nobody's going to come and help me. And he experienced mercy. And then he started looking around for people that he could dispense mercy to. And he saw these three kids out of nowhere, and he stopped and poured mercy out on us. Folks, if you're a believer and you've experienced the mercy of God, then you and I need to be in confessional community where we're telling our story, the story of God's grace and God's mercy and God's goodness and God's kindness. And I promise you when we do that, it will knit our hearts together like nothing else. And mercy will flow through those connections and mercy will flow out of those connections. And there will be something so powerful that it can only be attributed to the power of God at South Point Fellowship. Every week we take bread and juice and we remember the mercy of God. When you take that bread in your hand and you dip it in that juice or you grab one of these containers back there on the back table, remember, remember where you were when he found you. Remember how broken you were. Remember how hopeless you were. Remember how alone you were. Don't get too far from that. Stand with other brothers and sisters. Stand with them because we know each other's story and we know of God's great mercy. And we know that there are others that need to become, become a part of the confessional community so that mercy can be poured out.